0: This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Revelation, chapter 7, verses 9 to 17. It's found on page 969 in the Bibles there in your rows. If you'd like to turn there and follow along as I read. Revelation 7, 9 to 17. I said to him, "'Sir, you know.' And he said to me, "'These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more.' The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat, for the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to
1: God. Good morning. Christ is risen. Happy Easter to you. My name is Josh. I'm One of the pastors here, really glad that you could be here this morning. For the uh, last several months, uh, we here at New City have been studying the Old Testament book of Lamentations. And the context of that book was the destruction of Jerusalem in 587 B.C. And the book is not so much a history of what happened, but rather Lamentations is a, a book of poems, a book of tears, you might say. A book cataloging the sorrows and the sufferings of those who experienced the destruction of their city and and all that comes along with that. And we said that that book, Lamentations, is so important. The reason why it's in our Bible is that while we may never experience the literal destruction of a city, although, of course, there are plenty of people in this world who do, see Kiev or Syria or Ethiopia or Yemen or you can go on and on and on. But even if that's not us, all of us, all of us, all of us experience something of the evil and brokenness and sorrow and trouble of this world and we need to learn the language of lament because if we don't develop the spiritual discipline of lamenting then when the pain does come crashing into our lives we might be tempted to lose our faith or we might stuff our grief and deny our pain but that only works for a while before it starts to spill out into other Areas of our life, or we may spend our entire life trying to insulate ourselves from the sufferings and the grief of others, thereby abdicating our calling and our mission in this world. And so, the language of lament allows us to honestly count up our losses, to grieve our pain, to weep with those who weep, and ultimately, then to call out to God for healing and rescue. So, Lamentations is a book of tears. But Easter reminds us that tears do not get the last word. Look at the end of verse 17. Jathniel just read to us. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Jesus Christ rose from the dead on the first day of the week so that you could be raised from the dead on the last day of history. And that place that we are raised to, sometimes called the New Jerusalem, sometimes called the New City, or the Kingdom of Heaven, or the Kingdom of God, in that place, John tells us, there will be no tears. The book of Revelation, sometimes called the Apocalypse of St. John. John, the Apostle, is the author. Apocalypse is the Greek word for revealing or pulling back the curtain, maybe the most literal way to think of it. John is pulling back the curtain on what had previously been unseen in order to make sense of the world that we do see. And we're just sort of dipping in here this morning on Easter Sunday to the book of Revelation. But let me give you just a a real brief context for the passage that we're going to be studying for just a couple of minutes here this morning. Real quick context, all right? Chapter 1 of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus. John is the only living apostle, the only one who has not been martyred for his faith, and so he's on exile on the island of Patmos, and Jesus comes to him. Chapters 2 and 3 are Jesus' words to the seven churches in Asia Minor, present-day Turkey, some words of encouragement that Jesus has, some words of rebuke that Jesus has. Chapter 4 is a scene in heaven. The throne room of God. And everyone is gathered around the throne. They're worshiping God. Chapter 5, there's a scroll. And with it, the knowledge that God has a plan. Even in the midst of this broken, tear-filled world, God has a plan. But there's a problem. Nobody can open the scroll. No one can see the plan because there are seven seals placed upon it. And John even begins to weep because no one can open the scroll. Nobody can make sense of this crazy world. But then John says, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. This is Jesus, and he is worthy open the scroll and so in chapter 6 he breaks the seals and as the seals are broken all kinds of destruction is unleashed upon the earth the judgment of God has come and as you get to the end of chapter 6 the question that lingers is in the midst of all the difficulty in the midst of all the suffering in the midst of all the tribulation trial and tears who can possibly stand And everything's just sort of loaded up at this point to make you think the answer to that question, who can stand? The answer is, well, nobody. But then John surprises us in chapter 7. He starts our passage after this. I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number. You see, John is peeling back the curtain. And remember, he's writing to people who are under intense persecution in the shadow of the Roman Empire. They're being crushed. Their prospects are not good. And he says, there is hope. There is hope because I've seen the future. And this is where we're headed. Jesus Christ rose from the dead on the first day of the week so that on the last day of history, you will be raised too. And what will we be raised to experience? Three things. That we see in our passage this morning will be restored to community will be restored to God and we'll be restored to shalom. So let's think about it that way this morning. All right. First, this vision of the future that John has, he says we will be restored to community. And this is good news because when sin entered the world, one of the things the Bible tells us we lost is we lost each other. Genesis 3, opening pages of the Bible, Adam and Eve, they were in perfect fellowship with God, but also perfect fellowship with each other. They were made for each other. Right away, after they sinned, a wedge is driven between them. Adam blames Eve. Eve strives with Adam. Then they have kids, and it's not long before one of the children rises up and kills the other one. Civilization eventually develops. They try to build a life without God, and then they're scattered, torn apart from one another. The Tower of Babel. Because of sin, we lost each other, but in the kingdom of God, there will be A restoration of community. Verse 9, After this I looked, and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. A couple things to note about this resurrection community. First, just note that it will be many. A great multitude, it says. Now, imagine being one of the original readers of the book of Revelation. One of these seven little churches hearing this in the shadow of the big bad Roman Empire. They were small. They were marginalized. They were under intense persecution. And John says, I've seen the future. The community of faith is going to be too numerous even to count. And this should comfort us if we are anxious about the decline of Christianity in the West John tells us the final company of the redeemed will be gigantic. It'll be the fulfillment of the promise that God had made to Abraham long ago. God says to Abraham, you're going to be a great nation. Abraham says, I don't even have any kids. How will that be? And God says, come outside. Try to count the stars in the sky. That's how many, how numerous this people will be. And John sees the fulfillment of this in the kingdom of God. Be a multitude, but secondly, it'll be multi ethnic. Or you might say, the community of Jesus is an international community. And it actually began this way. Shortly after Jesus rose from the dead on Pentecost, the apostles were preaching in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit came upon them. People from all over the world, all over the region were there, and they got to hear the gospel in their own language right from the start. The gospel was meant to go into all the earth. And this morning, right now, Jesus Christ is being worshiped all around the globe. As you say this morning, Christ is risen, you are joining your voices with others saying the same thing in Mandarin and Spanish and Hindi and French and Arabic and Bengali and Swahili and so many other tongues as well. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. This is not a Western declaration. It never has been. It's all around the world. And that's where we're heading. John says we're headed for a truly international community in heaven, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. John Stott says all our narrow nationalisms will be overshadowed by harmony and shalom and unity. This is the undoing of the scattering of Babel, the reverse of the curse. This community will be many, multi-ethnic, and then also united. They'll all be singing the praises of their Redeemer. They'll be singing to the Lamb who is slain and who lives again. And what are they holding? Remember what it said? They're holding palm branches. The kids taught us about this last week, the waving of palm branches is how you welcome the king. It's how you celebrate the true reign and the true ruler. And so heaven is a kind of permanent Palm Sunday, except we won't be singing Hosanna, which means Lord save us. We'll be singing Hallelujah, which means we've been saved. It's thanksgiving and praise to the God of our salvation. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of heaven, we will be restored to community Now, what does that mean for us now? If we know this is where we are going, that we ought to be living into this vision now in the best way that we can. The quality of our life together as the people of God, as the church of Jesus Christ, the quality of our life together is meant to be a sign to others. It's meant to be a foretaste of what the kingdom of heaven will be like this idea of a sign, a foretaste, is not a new idea. When Moses was instructing the children of Israel about how they were to organize, how they were to live together. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, he says, you know, the justice, the love, the quality of life within the nation of Israel was meant to make people come from all over the globe and say, what a great nation is this and what a great God they must have. And in the New Testament, same idea when Jesus is reconstituting Israel, the new Israel, the church of Jesus Christ in the Sermon on the Mount as he gives them their law. He says that the church is meant to be a city on a hill, salt and light to the world. And so our life together is meant to give people a taste of the future with the weapons of hospitality and generosity, humility and love. Justice and forgiveness, we are meant to show people where the world is headed. How are we doing? Not always very good, if we're honest. But this is what we are to be striving for, aiming for. It's one of the reasons we confess our sins when we come together. to so know we have fallen short, but this is still where we're headed. And on a resurrection Sunday like this, this is what we recommit ourselves to. And there are times, thankfully, when communities do embody this foretaste of heaven. Sometimes even individuals give us this picture of the kingdom. Sometimes it happens in even the darkest of places. I was thinking this week about Anthony Ray Hinton. He has a memoir that he published um, right before the pandemic, I think. It's called The Sun Does Shine How I Found Life, Freedom, and Justice on death row. You might have heard of it because Oprah liked it, and so what she likes tends to get out there. Uh, Here's a picture, this next slide, of uh, Anthony Ray Hinton there on the right, his lawyer Brian Stevenson on the left. Hinton spent 30 years in prison for a crime that he did not commit. 30 years. He was cutting his mother's lawn when he was arrested. He didn't know what was going on. He thought it surely had to be a mistake he had an alibi for the crimes the murders that he was accused of but a racially motivated accusation a racially motivated prosecution along with a poor defense attorney and Hinton found himself on death row he got to his cell he threw his bible under his bunk not sure if he would ever pull it out again he spent the first two years he said in prison not talking to anyone he was angry he was in disbelief he was disoriented He only talked to his mother when she came to visit him. And then one day in the cell next to his, uh, one of the prisoners was crying, wailing, weeping, and it just annoyed him, he said. So this guy wasn't new. He knew what death row was like. They all knew what was happening. They were all scared, but why is he weeping? Why is he wailing? Why now? And finally, just out of annoyance, he began to talk to the man. Again, first time in two years, he opened himself up to talk to somebody else. And the man said that the reason that he was crying is he had just found out that his mother had died. And this melts Hinton because he loved his mother too. And he said, I sat back on that bed in my cell and realized that I had something to be thankful for. My mother was alive and I was alive as well and I decided I was going to make the best out of the rest of my life right there on death row. And the bond was forged between these two Prisoners, an unlikely bond, because the other prisoner was a man named Henry Hayes. Henry Hayes was a former Ku Klux Klansman, the son of a grand wizard. He was imprisoned for one of the last lynchings in the state of Alabama. And Hinton said, I have thought about it, and I truly believe God knew I was the only man on earth that could show Henry the love and understanding that he deserved. Anthony Ray Hinton led Henry Hayes to faith in Jesus Christ and in some sense they both were resurrected right there on death row and it wasn't only them through Hinton and through Hayes a community of the redeemed began to form among these prisoners in one of the darkest places in all the earth one child of God can turn death row into a church The other man in the picture is Brian Stevenson, another man of faith who founded the Equal Justice Initiative. He took Hinton's case, and after a retrial was eventually granted, the state of Alabama dropped the case against Hinton because new ballistics evidence showed that the bullets never matched the weapon that belonged to Hinton's mother, which the entire case was built upon. And after 30 years, like back from the dead, Hinton was set free. But he would say they were all kinds of resurrections along the way, the conversion of Hayes, the community formed on death row. John's vision of the future is one where we are restored to community. But second, it's a vision where we see that we'll be restored to God. When sin came into the world, we lost each other, but the most devastating thing that we lost was our relationship to God. Where are all the people gathered In John's vision, it says they're gathered around the throne. They're gathered around God. They're gathered around his rule and his reign. And this is what was lost when Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden. They lost the presence of God. And so now in heaven, we see it come back. The people are gathered around God's rule and reign, God's very presence once again. And what are they doing? They're singing the praises Of their rescuer. Salvation, verse 10, belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You know, all of our public worship now is really like choir practice for that day in heaven. And it's not just the community of redemption that's there, but the angels are worshiping too, in verse 11 and 12. But then we're back to that question from the end of chapter 6 who can stand? Judgment day is coming. Who can possibly stand up under it? Verse 13. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these who are clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? Who can stand? Well, it's the ones in the white robes, but who are they, and how did they get those robes? Are they the most moral people? Are they the smartest people? Are they the cleverest people? Are they the ones who are the most successful in the world? Verse 14, I said to him, sir, you know, and he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. How do you get the white robes? You need to be washed in the blood of the lamb. Now, how does that work? We're in the city of Procter and & Gamble, and we all know, right, the city of Tide and other cleaning products that we, we all know here, right, that you take a garment and you wash it in blood, it doesn't get spotless, right? That's not how it works, but this is an allusion you have to see to the story of the Passover in Exodus chapter 12. As God was freeing the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt, they were to take the blood of a lamb, a spotless lamb, and they were to put it over their doorposts. So that the angel of death would pass over those households. Judgment would not fall on those who took shelter under the blood of the Lamb. And when we get to the New Testament, we first encounter Jesus. John the Baptist sees him and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus Christ is the sacrificial Lamb who died to wash your sins and who rose again to clothe you with his righteousness. That's how we become fit. To stand in God's presence. That's how we are restored to God. It's not our work, it's His work. This is why they're singing Salvation belongs to our God. The Lamb saves, the Lamb did it, the Lamb is the one who makes us clean. Has that happened to you? Has that happened for you? Salvation is not about what you can do, but what He has done. You need to take your robes to the Lamb. Ask him to wash you clean. Tish Warren writes about how uh, in the Anglican church, Anglican tradition, they have this history of blessing new homes. So somebody buys a house in the congregation, they would move in and the priest would come to the home and There would be a liturgy and some prayers and blessings that are said as you sort of move through room to room in the house. And so in the bedroom, there's prayers for rest and restoration, for safety and security. In the kitchen and the dining room, there's words of blessing said for all the gatherings that will happen there. The conversations had over food, the hospitality that will be shown, the strangers that are welcomed. Then when they get to the bathroom... Warren says, that's where people sort of perk up a little bit because what is the priest going to bless in here? (laughs) And the priest puts oil on the mirror and says, may the person who looks in this mirror see themselves the way that God sees them. In Jesus Christ, God sees you washed clean by the blood of the Lamb, pure and holy, spotless, set apart, Redeemed. And the last thing to mention here under this point is that there's all this worship happening, all this singing, all this praise of God, and not just here in chapter 7, but really throughout the book of Revelation. Point being, rescued people tend to make a big deal of their rescuer. Rescued people tend to make a big deal of their rescuer. There's passion, in other words. There's joy. There's thanksgiving. There's a desire to share it with others. And by the way, you don't have to wait for heaven for that. Easter is about resurrection, right? And so if your faith is cold, if your faith is merely intellectual, if your faith seems to maybe even be disappeared or buried, let me invite you to pray that God would drive these things home to your heart. Even this morning, there would be a resurrection of passion in you because rescued people tend to make a big deal of their rescuer. They want to tell others about him. They overflow with thanksgiving and praise and joy and worship. Vision of the future restored to community, restored to God, and finally restored to shalom. When, we sin, when sin came into the world, rather, we lost each other, we lost our relationship with God, but the other thing that we lost was the Garden of Eden. We lost paradise. We lost the way things were supposed to be. And the biblical word for this is shalom. Sometimes we translate it as peace. It means something more like holistic flourishing. Things going the way they're supposed to be a world without thorns and thistles, right? And when we look at these last few verses, this is exactly what we see being restored. In verses 15 to 17, we see shelter and shepherding in the kingdom of God. 15, therefore, they are before the throne of God, serving him day and night in his temple. So God is there, we're with them; we're serving him. And then it says, and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. And if you were here during... Our lamentation series, one of the things that the prophet Jeremiah was consistently lamenting was the loss of shelter, the loss of protection. They lost their city. They lost their homes. They lost the promised land. They lost the temple. They lost their king. And with the loss of all those things comes the loss of shelter. Psalm 91 begins, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. But here in the kingdom of God, John says it's back. It's back. And with it, verse 16, they shall hunger no more, nor thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. And it's not just shelter, but it's a shepherd. It's being shepherded. The Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. You are with me. Psalm 23 And in Revelation chapter 7, we see this in its fullness. Verse 17, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to the springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. John pulls back the curtain. And to a group of folks who are undergoing all kinds of sorrow, all kinds of suffering and trouble and trial and tribulation. And he says to them, I've seen the future. And tears don't get the last word. I've seen the future and tears don't get the last word. Jesus Christ, who died, lives again. And he's gone ahead of us to prepare a place for us in the kingdom of heaven. And there we will be restored to community. There we will be restored to God. There we will be restored to shalom the way things are supposed to be. And if we know that this is where we are headed, then there's nothing we can't face in this world right now. Even the worst of our sorrows, even the worst of our suffering will be healed in the kingdom of heaven. There will be an end to lament. Jesus Christ rose from the dead on the first day of the week so that you could be raised from the dead on the final day of history. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this picture of heaven, this glimpse of the future meant to give us hope. And we pray even this morning as we contemplate these things, as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, that we'd be reminded that it's not only his resurrection, but indeed a foretaste. He's the first fruits, as we said earlier, the first fruits of a greater resurrection to come. And we pray that as we long for, hope for that day, that we would lean into the reality of the future, a restored community, a restored relationship with you, a restoration of shalom, and that we might be able to live according to those truths and values even now. Would you help us, fill us, meet with us, even in the midst of our pain, as the Apostle Paul said, for I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Would you give us a glimpse, a taste, an experience of that glory, even as we sing now, as we sing to Jesus Christ, who is worthy, of all of our praise. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.
0: You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. dot org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.